speak to you today. I get to do this every once in a while, and it's always a joy for me. And today I'm going to be speaking on the subject of politics and the believer. And let me tell you something, it's very complicated. <laughs> so we continue in our series today. You know, throughout your life, what, what have you been told by your parents or about just about everybody else? There's two things we don't talk about in our families. We don't talk about religion. We don't talk about politics. You don't do it at work. You don't do it in your neighborhood. These are two things you just don't talk about. It's complicated. And I get to do both today, politics and religion. So we'll have a good time doing this. You know, you can't believe how many pages I read in uh, preparation for this particular message. Hundreds of pages in books and articles on the Internet and so forth. And in a 99% of them, you would get the impression that America is going in, into the sewer and it's, you know, almost beyond repair. That's just the tenor of what's coming out in terms of what's happening to our nation. And then I had at least three different thoughts. The first one was that most of us are getting along pretty well in America. And we may hear about these things and we may see them on the television. We say, see the talking heads talking about these things. And we say, well, you know, I, my life is getting along pretty well. And we don't really see the relevance of a lot of these issues to our particular lives. And uh, even though the economy may be affected or government or our school, any, any, we just plow through, even though it may have significant impact on our lives, little way down the road. So number one, we're doing pretty well. And what are you talking about? Number two, surely there are some bright spots we can identify and address. And there are. And so it wouldn't be fair just to tell about all the horrible things. And we're not going to do that. But thirdly, there have been multiple periods throughout history uh, and the history of the church where Christians have had it as bad or worse, in, in many cases, much, much worse. And the church emerged intact and always victorious, even though battered for a while. It rises up. And these three thoughts led me to our central truth for the day. Here it is. Good news or bad news, live the faith's values. That's our role in whether it's good or bad news for America. Friends, until Jesus returns, we're going to have good news and bad news, and it's been this way throughout history. Up and down, up and down. So our strategy for today is threefold. First of all, I want to give you an historical lesson as to how the church has developed over the centuries. It will be extremely brief, but I think informative. And then secondly, I want to point out a couple, just two, problem areas, bad news, and it's really bad news. It isn't just maybe bad news. It's really bad news. And then I want to show you how and why we're to live our faith's values in the light of what's going on in America. So let's turn to the whole idea of church history. We have to start the church in the middle of the Roman Empire, the Roman period, if you will. How could the church get started under more difficult circumstances? If you've been watching the television program AD, uh, for example, you see how the persecution just spread immediately to the Christians. First it was from the Jews, and then very quickly it came from the Romans. And then for 300 and 
Some years, the church spottily here and there, but under insane emperors, Nero, Caligula, and so many others. Uh, Nero, for example, used to get his kicks out of uh, taking Christians. Pregnant women were maybe his favorite, and he'd slit their stomachs, and then he'd pour oil in their stomachs, hang them on a pole, and light them up. And that was what he used to light his garden. Sometimes it was more fun to put a bunch of babies in a, in a, a skin, an animal skin, throw it out into the Colosseum and let the lions and the tigers have at it with living babies in those skins. And so the church was persecuted. There were thousands and thousands of Christians who were crucified, burned at the stake, any number of uh, kinds of tortures. And the church kept growing. Until 325 A.D., you have the Council of Nicaea, where the emperor gets together with the church leaders and they map out how the empire is going to go from here. And so from the Roman period to the Reformation, we have the church growing in different ways. And it has its down periods, it has its up periods. This is the period during which we have the monasteries, the monastic orders coming into being. The Benedictine, the Franciscan, the Carmelite, the Dominican, and the Augustinian. All of these trying to find ways to bring the church back to its original place under Jesus Christ. Till we get to the Reformation. And the Reformation, of course, starts with Luther. But uh, there were many others who quickly joined in with that Reformation. And among them you have Zwingli, Melanchthon, you have Knox and Calvin and uh, Many, many others began to break off and trying to refine Christianity so we got back to the original order. And within, and then you have what I'll call the post-Reformation, although it was closely tied. And I just want to mention for a minute uh, the post-Reformation, most notably the Anabaptists. Uh, the Anabaptists were a, a group that said the church is in danger of uh, going south again with the second generation. We understand what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ, but our kids just don't get it. They don't see what we've come out of. So how can we make the church pure? So they came on the idea that what they would do is they would baptize only adults. And in the baptism of adults, it would be an affirmation of their personal faith in Christ. And the Anabaptists began to grow and to grow and to grow. Both the Catholics and the Protestants hated them. They absolutely hated them. And some historians say that as many as 50,000 Anabaptists were either burned alive, tortured, or drowned. Uh, and most of, the, most of that 50,000 killed. Incidentally, it's from the Anabaptists that most of the principles uh, that we have in our nation, separation of church and state and, and many other things, came from the Anabaptists. And many of our roots, if you came out of a Baptist uh, background, come from those early Anabaptists. But the point is, the Reformation, the monasteries, the church grew, even though there were the ups and the downs. Then you come to the Wesleyan revivals. Wesley was born in around 1703. I think he lived to be about 88 years old. 
a, a fire brand of a man along with his brother. And the Wesleyan revivals came and they addressed all kinds of social evils in the country. Uh, and they built schools, they built hospitals, they, they railed against bad prisons and they reformed the prisons. And historians say that if it hadn't been for the Wesleyan revivals that Britain would have gone the way of the French in the French Revolution. They were spared. It was so bad in the Parliament of England that they couldn't even meet for Parliament because too many MPs were drunk. They just couldn't meet. And so the revivals, the Western revivals come along. And then closely following them, you have these politicians called Wilberforce and Lord Shaftesbury. And they get on into the 1800s. And they even improve the reforms that had taken place. And especially uh, Wilberforce uh, railing against slavery. And over a period of 30, 40 years, finally gets the slaves freed uh, in Britain. And then, concurrently with that, in America, you've got the first uh, Great Awakening, and that included Jonathan Edwards. It included um, um, George Whitfield, And God brought revival to America. Then there was a second Great Awakening in the, in the 1800s, a third Great Awakening, which included um, D.L. Moody and other evangelists and so forth. And the church grew. Yeah, it had its down points. But God brought revival to the church, and it grew. And there was a fourth Great Awakening. And that fourth Great Awakening took place in the 60s. And the 60s were a tumultuous period in America. And the church wasn't particularly thriving during that time. And uh, so what did God do? He brought in the fourth great awakening that people today call the Jesus movement. If you were alive back then, you know how that by the millions, literally by the millions, university students who, who just took a look at what was going on in America turned away and said they're turning to Christ. And the church just blossomed during those 60s. I don't know if you remember, but back in 1967, and yesterday was the anniversary of the Six-Day War, most of us, with what was going on in the universities, being bombed, riots in the streets, the 68 riot here in Chicago uh, during the uh, Democratic National Convention, I thought the world was imploding. But the church kept growing so much so that by 1976 time magazine in a in a famous headline the year of the evangelical wow we had risen to that point and that's part of that fourth great awakening i want to speak to the whole idea of china for example this idea that the church cannot be suppressed it it will always win china when the communists came in, they drove out all of the missionaries. They began to kill the Christians by the thousands. Anybody who had uh, the name of Christ in a church, and so they had to go back into house churches. Missionaries were driven out. They were being persecuted. By the time the communist regime had settled down and they were letting missionaries come back in, statistics would show that there were, by that time, a hundred million Christians in China. And it's continued to grow. The church is still growing. 
And it's amazing. The Soviet Union, the same thing. You could not worship Jesus publicly in the Soviet Union unless you were part of a registered church. And then those churches were very closely monitored what you could say and what you could teach. And so most believers said, we're not worshiping in those churches. We're going to have our own secret churches. And one of the uh, pastors who lived through that era, Pastor Ivan Hazarbasanov, will be here on June 20th. And uh, we're going to go to his church in Bulgaria where they had to meet in secret and many of their people were put in prison and their jobs were lost and so forth. But the church grew. And so good news or bad news, we live the Lord's values. Ah, dear friends, listen to me. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus was not talking about a defensive posture. (laughs) That's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying that the gates of hell would be saying, no, no more, no more. And we would be battering down those gates of hell as the church because Jesus is building his church and we're a part of that. We're a part of doing it in his strength and according to his plan. And as I've told you before, I am amazed as I go around in different parts of the world. I've been to quite a few countries of the world. I'm amazed at how God has just sprinkled his people and his church all over the world. He's doing it in miraculous ways. He's building his church, not only with local churches and small churches and house churches, what we call organic churches. One of our missionaries, John Lunau, talked to us about that just a few weeks ago. But he's building schools, including colleges and seminaries, hospitals, orphanages, mega food programs, social justice issues, trade schools. By every conceivable means, if you can think of it, God is using it. And Jesus is building his church. And consider the resources we have to get out our message. And God is using these resources in many ways. Television, radio, magazines, books, DVDs, CDs, the internet. None of these resources were available in all these earlier centuries I'm telling you about. And we have them all at our fingertips. And God is using every single one of them to build his church. It's still going on. And he's doing that work. Yes, we've got good news. But we've got some bad news too. And I'm going to share only two issues with you this morning. The first bad news has to do with the First Amendment. Freedom of religion. The First Amendment of our Constitution actually reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The constitutionality guaranteed free exercise of religion in America extends well beyond the freedom to worship. It includes the freedom to live out our conscientiously held beliefs. Listen, friends, the constitutions of China and the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, grants the freedom of worship, but not the freedom of religion. What's the difference? 
Be careful. You're going to hear this over already many in our State Department. This is the mantra today in the State Department to the rest of the world. It's absolutely tragic. Freedom of worship, freedom of worship. They had freedom of worship in China, Soviet Union. That means that you can worship here in church. You can worship in your home, but nowhere else. You see, there was a strong movement in some circles to take out every vestige of religion from the public square. There are numerous incidents in which Christians are being marginalized from expressing our faith in that public square. Most of the pages I told you about, those hundreds of pages I told you about, are dealing with this reality. Everything. And I'm taking little things here. Everything from denying a, a child the right to pray for his meal at lunchtime and suspending him for do, doing so. A child, a third grader, bows his head and prays. Teacher comes up, you can't do that here. Takes him to the principal, the kid gets suspended. It's happened and it's happening all over America because people misunderstand the role of religion and the freedom of religion. In America, to a valedictorian having the name Jesus in his or her speech, and that all of the speeches have to be read in advance. Oh, I'm sorry, that word will be have to be taken out. I wonder if they would do the same thing if the name Muhammad would put were put in that speech. Freedom of religion, the whole brouhaha over the meaning and application of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is the most visible assault on Christians' freedom of religion. That uh, law that was written in Indiana, was written in Arkansas, all of the things that we see with the pizzeria and the, bake, the, the bakery and the photographer and so forth, and, and all of the discussions that took place, it's a massive discussion. And there's a huge movement that wants to take any vestige of religion out of the public square. Now, some of these things we may say, well, you know, those are petty. Those really don't bother us. They really don't amount to much. But I promise you that there is a movement out there that is determined to spread that message against the use of religion. It's a steady assault by a large number of people who are really angry and determined to eliminate religious expression from the public square, and they will never give up. They're furious that someone is asked to pray at a Memorial Day parade. And I'm here to tell you that Pastor Errol's been asked to pray at the Memorial Day Parade. There are at least four prayers this last parade. And he prays in Jesus' name. He lifts up the Lord Jesus in his prayer. They truly want freedom from religion, not freedom of religion. You've heard that before. Friends, the church can flourish as it did in China the Soviet Union, and elsewhere with these restrictions. This will not kill the church. And even though they're petty, 
Let's say, for example, if your child is disciplined for praying at lunch, don't just stand back and go, oh boy, okay. Stand up for your rights. Go to that principle. Go in love, go gently, go humbly, and say, really, you can't do this. My child has a right to bow his head anywhere in America. And by the way, the courts will hold you up. All of the courts, every decision that's ever been made on this subject back you up. Problem is, schools and school leaders don't know it. Or they know it and try to get away with it. There is a movement out there. Do it respectfully. A reasoned talk. Not a diatribe or a threatening session. We go as godly people to these leaders. Now, that's bad news. That is happening. That's bad news. Our second issue is even worse bad news, and it relates to the issue of marriage. Now, friends, I'm going to tread lightly here, and I don't want anyone to jump to conclusions. This is not an attack on any group of people. I'm dealing with a biblical principle. We love everybody God puts in our sphere of influence, period. Any person, any group, we seek to live with their best interests in view, and we seek to do it kindly, lovingly, gently. However, sometime in the next few days, the U.S. Supreme Court will announce its decision on the constitutionality of same-sex marriage. And most evangelical spokesmen believe that this will be the watershed issue for the church. This is it. You see, the legalizing of abortion, for example, doesn't touch a pastor or really the church because we don't have to perform abortions. Nobody's going to ask me to do that. And we're still free to express our opinions about this subject. Denying citizens the rights to guns and ammunition won't phase the church. You know, if they finally get a way to get rid of the Second Amendment, and by the way, I don't have a gun, I don't have any ammunition, and I would never use it if I did. Uh, But I have nothing against those who want to have guns and, and, and use them for hunting or whatever. Raising the capital gains tax could hurt some of us. Or raising the tax rates in general but it really won't hurt the church very much at all, if at all, okay? You get the idea? The church can be told by government to do a lot of things and not do a lot of things. And as long as there is no biblical, no direct biblical word on the subject, we're going to obey the government respectfully. In this case, however, most spiritual leaders are convinced that a pressure group will begin to demand that all churches and all pastors marry same-sex couples, and then the whole church will have a problem. This falls under the biblical principle first expressed by Peter and the apostles when they were told to stop preaching in Jesus' name, 
And they said, we must obey God rather than men. And that's when many pastors will have to say no to the government and to the people asking us to violate what we believe is the biblical definition of marriage. And then there will be further actions after that. Non-compliance, take away license, take away the freedom to give to churches tax-free. On and on it will go. Now, I'm not going to say any more about this because this is a tender subject. And I want to remind you of what I said my very first sentence. This is not attack on any group. We, we are called as Christians to love everybody within our sphere of influence, period. But we're going to have uh, Professor Christopher Ewan here, an openly gay teacher at Moody Bible Institute on July 11th and 12th. And he will take up this issue with a whole congregation. There'll be opportunity for questions and answers at another time after that. And he will speak with authority to this issue because he expresses that he is a person of gay orientation without gay behavior. We have no problem with that. And so he will speak here. And I urge you to come. Bring your friends. Bring your gay friends, your your gay relatives to, to this place. They will be treated with respect and with love and kindness. Nevertheless, this is a part of the bad news facing the church in the near future. Still, our central truth guides us. Good news or bad news, live the faith's values. Live the Lord's values. Now, the second half of this Central truth is where the rubber meets the road for us. This is, well, you know, now what? What do we do from here? It assumes that we know and know how to apply biblical values. That is, we have established a worldview, if you will. By the way, uh, if, if you want to, every issue that you want to study, you can go to a, a, a website called carm.org, C-A-R-M.org. And just put in your your search and up will come lots of good answers for you if you're interested in how should a Christian think about this. In a sense, building this worldview is what we try to do here every week. And it's particularly why we've gone into these, you know, it's complicated kinds of issues. So that when you're talking to your friends or you're talking to your loved ones, you've got the biblical basis for doing so. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. And this also assumes that we know what's going on in our world. We don't just turn a blind eye. You know, it drives me nuts. Have you ever watched on Fox News? I know none of you watch Fox News. I watch it once in a while. Have you ever seen this Waters World? Anybody here willing to admit it? Waters World? He goes out and he asks the simplest questions known to man. And he, and he goes to Harvard and Columbia University and Yale, MIT. Who was the first president of the United States? Uh, 
Who's the current vice president of the United States? Nixon? I'm not kidding. Who said? <laughs> I'm not going to go any further. It, I'll go. Who, who said? Ask not what you can do for your country. Ask what can... What can Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You know? Roosevelt? <laughs> it's just amazing. So, oh, I, so I got to get back to my uh, theme here. This assumes that we know what's going on in our world. Listen, when Christians are uninformed and uninvolved, the culture changes without our biblical values as guidelines. And as a church, big church with a capital C, we are at least partially responsible for the moral decline of our nation. And if you don't see the moral decline of our nation, you're not paying attention. I don't know any spiritual leader who's been in ministry 20, 25 years who doesn't just blush at the moral decline of our nation. It's tragic. And it's getting worse. And may I add that above all, Christians should exercise the unbelievable privilege and freedom to vote. To our shame, far too many Christians have sat on the sidelines because they say God appoints all leaders with or without a vote. This is a specious argument. It's a false argument. It's like saying, well, God knows all that we need before we pray. So we don't need to pray. Or God knows who's going to come to Christ. So we don't need to witness. Friends, God ordains the ends and he ordains the means. He says to pray. He says to witness. There's no direct statement in the Bible to vote. But my goodness, to raise up a nation that said that power is in the people, not in the governors, but the power comes from the people and given the freedom to vote, to just cast it aside as God will appoint. He does. But he uses us as his means vote. And when we have a person in our church or you know a a particular Christian and you know his worldview and you believe in his principles, his guidelines, please go out and vote for him. We need more Christians in the public square. And that's another part of the good news. I haven't told the other two congregations. We have an enormous number of godly men in government at all levels, at all levels. And in this particular election coming up, we have more evangelical Christians running for president than ever before in my lifetime. Amazing. That's good news. That's good news. Now, there's a bunch of texts that we could explore, some of which are classics that we've all seen many times before. And I, I was tempted to use them, but... There's a sense in which if you you overuse something, 
I, I could see why you'd just sit back and say, oh boy, here we go again. So I'm not going to do that. But I will refer to them. Romans chapter 13 is a classic that teaches us that, that Paul writes, uh, be subject to and give respect to all those in authority. For they wield the sword for your good, for public order. And if you're caught for doing wrong, then, you know, you're to blame. He says, go on, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes to this evil regime. This regime that's put me in jail just because I'm a Christian. Pay your taxes. For all the wrong ends they're using their taxes, you pay your taxes. Oh, no man anything else but to love that person. And then we could go to Second Peter, Paul, Peter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter says the same thing. Be subject to those. Respect those in authority. Pray for the king. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul goes to, to write, I'm writing to you a matter of the first importance, something the most important you can do. What does he say? Pray for all men and pray for those in authority, the kings and the governors and authorities. Look it up, 1 Timothy chapter 2. First priority, pray for them. And then he goes on to pray that the Lord will give us the peaceful, quiet times in which to share the good news. That's the best context. Not disorder, not shaking our fists at government, peaceful, quiet lives. For God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But then there's this text that I love. And this is what I want to call us to today. Look at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind the people, here we have it again, to be subject to rulers and authorities. Peter and Paul had both been beaten by these unjust governments. They'd seen many Christians suffer at the hands of a government. People's homes were taken away. They lost their jobs. They suffered greatly. And yet they say, remind the people. I've told you this before, but remind them. Be subject. And then to be obedient. And not just grudging obedience, respectful obedience. Not just to the government, but to all those who are in authority over you. In your job, be obedient. Have an attitude of obedience, not rebellion, not rejection, but an attitude of obedience. And then be ready to do good, to to do whatever is good. That's a theme of Titus, incidentally. I'll come back to that in just a minute. To slander no one. Uh, I've got to be careful about this because I have strong political feelings. That's one of the reasons I was asked to do this message. But I have strong political feelings. And you ask any one of my grandchildren, um, who should we vote for, Grandpa? Or I should I say, uh, Rylan, who, who should Americans vote for for the next election? Boom! They know the answer. Okay? And then I'll say, and who was the worst, you know, president in America? Boom! They know the answer. But guys, we've got to be careful about this. We should not slander the superintendent of schools. 
We shouldn't be slandering the principal of the school. We shouldn't slander the mayor or the trustees. We shouldn't slander our senators, our representatives. We may disagree with them wholeheartedly, and I do with some of our representatives. But we don't slander them. We don't speak evil. Respect. To be peaceable. I already referred to that. Peace is the best context for evangelism. We don't want war. We don't want hassle. We've worked hard to have a good relationship with our village. And thanks to someone like Jerry Chopin and Pastor Errol and and Lyle Selk, we've got an outstanding relationship with Manuka government. And consider it. That's thinking of others before yourself. And show true humility to all men. One of the greatest curses against Christians is that we're high and mighty. We're better than others. We're holier than thou. No, no, no. Christians are not better. We're just forgiven. And, and that's the attitude that we should be portraying to the people around us. Now, with regard to do whatever is good, be ready to do whatever is good. I want to suggest two different ways that we do that. We do that here at Manuka Bible Church in 2013, 2014, and 2015. We ask you to become involved in those ministries that um, are available to us. Not all of them, but some of them. Pray, give, participate. But then as individuals, we should, and many of you do, get busy out in the community. And you don't always have to be trumpeting your Christianity, but when you're asked about it, why do you do this? One of our men in our master's men was at a conference not long ago. He didn't say a single word about Christ, not one word about Jesus. And a man came up to him and said, you're a Christian, aren't you? He stepped back and said, yeah, but how did you know that? I can tell by the way you act. And he wanted to know more. So that's the kind, that's the kind of people we need to be. Remind the people. All right, so where does this take us next? We're almost done. Look at what it says there. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? Will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. We all know that salt is good for flavoring. We know it's good for preserving. We don't all know that it's good for healing. Yes, salt solutions are used for healing. I have an eye condition where I'm supposed to have salt drops in my eyes to draw out moisture that doesn't come out naturally in my eyes. Uh, And so salt is a healing. And so we need to be all three as a church and as Christians. We need to be flavoring our environment. We need to be healing it and we need to be preserving the good in it. That's the role of the Christian and the Christian church. And then the second role is to be light in this community. And light drives out darkness. The tiniest little light beats darkness every time. And light also helps us to see things better. 
And what we want to do is we want to drive out the evil. We want to help people see things better. What is the best way? What's the best way to run this country? What's the best way to live? And those are the roles that the Lord has given to us. When there's not enough salt or light in the world, the church may have to go underground. Or it may be persecuted. But the church Jesus is building will eventually batter down the gates of hell. Evil will not win. We know that Jesus' return is certain, and some of us believe it is soon. But until he comes, he wants us to stay busy improving the world around us whenever and wherever we can. Amen? Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to live out Titus 3, 1 and 2, to be that salt and light that you've called us to be, to be the good in our world and drawing people to you, the good and holy one. We do this, Lord, for our good, our nation's good, but most of all, for your glory. Amen. God bless you. Go out and be salt and light.